Amen. Let's turn to Romans 14. Romans 14. Beginning in verse 1 of Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your own brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account to himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned. If he eats because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Father, I am 
humbled and amazed at what you desire to accomplish in us. And I ask you to come and do that today for the glory of God alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Anytime you start anything, there has to be some idea in your head about where you're going and what you desire to look like or what you think it might look like. So whether it's a new job or a new neighborhood or a new school or uh, a new hobby, a new trip, maybe even a new church, you're thinking, this is where I'm going, this is where I'm headed, this is what I think it may look like, this is what I want it to look like, this is what I'm pursuing. And so as the Crossing Church, what we have been pursuing from day one is to be a people who desire as many people as possible to enjoy Christ by following Christ and being changed by His gospel. Disciples of Christ who are experiencing gospel transformation. That's what we've been chasing for the last three and a half years. Another way of putting that is, is, is this. We want as many people as possible to experience as much of Jesus as possible in this life. We're not proclaiming religion. Do good, try harder to be a good person or have a better life. We're not proclaiming a ticket to heaven So that when you die, you have assurance that you'll go to heaven. And until then, you know, give or take, it's it's all right, whatever happens. We're not proclaiming a path to a better life now because heaven doesn't matter. So let's just try and preserve or create a utopia on earth because that's what matters most. We proclaim Jesus, his gospel, the good news of Christ, who he is and what he's done. Now, Following Christ means you're going to do good things. Following Christ means when you die, you will go to heaven. Following Christ will give you your best life now, but you can proclaim all of those things without Jesus. You can proclaim all of those things and not include Christ and leave him out. We want to proclaim all of Jesus, all of his gospel, the depths, the riches, the joys, the power, the, f- the fullness, everything through his gospel in community with one another. One way of thinking about membership covenant or covenantal membership is this. This is simply an explanation of what that life will look like. What does it look like for a group of people to pursue Christ to such a degree that they are experiencing as much of Jesus as possible. What does that look like? There's our membership covenant. It's just a description. It's explicit. It's thorough without being ridiculously long. And you being a covenantal member is simply you agreeing with that and saying with all of us, let's chase that together. Let's go after that together because we won't get there without Jesus in the gospel and we won't get there alone. We have to have each other. So to sum up what we've covered so far, we've been walking for several weeks through this membership covenant. We want to experience the fullness of Christ in a local church, which means we agree that we should be a regenerate born-again people who actually have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. That you've declared that through believer's baptism in a local church at some point in your life. That you have continued to celebrate that through communion. That you're engaged in the life of a local church. 
giving of your time, skills, gifts, resources, sacrificially, generously, uh, cheerfully, that your marriage is a, is a marriage that's marked by faithfulness and health, and that all of us, singles, married, whoever, are pursuing what is holy, good, and wise in all of our actions and attitudes. Like We're all going after that together because of the reality of Christ in us. Now, according to the Bible, this is normal Christianity. But normal Christianity has always looked radical in our fallen world. Therefore, our covenantal membership might look radical also, even in the church world. In a way, it it isn't, but it seems like it is, because if you grew up in the South, you grew up in a typical Bible Belt church in the South, covenantal membership is weird and different, and you've never experienced that before. But in another way, it is radical because to live one hour, one day, one second, one minute as this kind of follower of Jesus Christ is impossible apart from the work of Christ in you. You can't do it without Christ. It is radical. It requires death. Death to self. Yourself will continually resist this. Yourself will continually want to create religion and rules and idols to worship instead of Jesus. All of that has to die to experience as much of Jesus as possible in this life. So we, we have a process that we walked through with you before. Becoming a covenantal member of the crossing we think is biblical and good considering the context that we're in. And we're encouraging as many people as possible who are with us, one heart, one mind, who want this to get this done in 2017. If you're not ready for that, if you still have questions, if you still want to walk it out longer, fine. Take your time. No pressure. But today we, we finished looking at the final two parts of the membership covenant. And then next week, next week we'll look at this idea of church discipline. So as a covenantal member of the Crossing Church, you agree, number 11, to recognize the teaching on Christian freedom, especially actions that could present a stumbling block to others. And then number 12, you agree to strive to fulfill the one another's of the New Testament and how I relate to my family of faith. For example, love one another, forgive one another, serve one another with love, submit to one another, bear with one another, admonish one another. There are approximately 59 such references in the New Testament that refer to a healthy church fellowship and I'm committing to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey those commands and edify, build up the body of Christ. Now, this passage in Romans 14 and 15 is one of the key passages to understanding this idea of Christian freedom or Christian liberty. That The Bible is explicit on many things pertaining to our attitudes and actions. This is good. Do it. This is not good. Don't do it. Uh, The New City Catechism in question 7 puts it like this. What does the law of God require? And part of the answer is this. What God forbids should never be done, and what God commands should always be done. And the Bible is filled with that, where it's black and white, clear, crystally clear. This is what's okay. This is what's not okay. There has to be a common foundation for a local church about these key essentials, these what we would call close-handed issues. That, that these things have to be, there has to be conformity here. There has to be uniformity here. And so there's not many of them, but the ones that there are, these are the hills on which we would die. These are the, the, the teachings, the truths, the doctrines that we're, we're not budging on these things. Things like the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. The sinfulness of man, the essentialness and sinful, uh, sufficiency of Jesus and his gospel to be the path to salvation, the way of salvation through Christ. 
The person and work of the Holy Spirit in our redemption, our life in Christ, the return of Christ. We don't know when, we don't know what it's going to look like, but we know He's coming back to establish the eternal state. These are essentials. There's more, but there has to be conformity on these essentials because if you came to us and you said on one of those, I don't think that's right, we would work with you, be gracious with you, teach you, uh, ask questions, and then if you still didn't think it was right, we would say, you might not be a Christian. I don't think Jesus alone is a way of salvation. I think these other things also provide salvation. Okay, you, you might not be a Christian. Or this organization might not be a church if they didn't adhere to these essentials of our faith. But, but Christian liberty, Christian freedom, speaks about those other areas of life. The Bible does not forbid, nor does the Bible say these things are necessarily good, so do it. These gray area issues where the Bible does not speak in black and white terms. Now, theologically, it could refer to a number of issues, uh, young earth versus old earth, mode of baptism, can women be deacons, what our liturgy looks like on Sunday mornings, what's happening during communion, the timing of the rapture, the, the millennial reign of Christ, to name a few. Typically, Christian liberty is, dis, is, is discussed and refers to social issues. How you dress. Is it okay to drink alcohol? Is it okay to gamble? Can I get tattoos and piercings? Uh, immunizations, how you school your kids, the use of tobacco, the use of prescription psychotherapeutic medications, what movies, music, entertainments can I enjoy and watch and listen to, what you eat, essential oils, organic versus non-organic, free trade coffee versus not free trade coffee, democratic, republican, and independent libertarian, calves or warriors, Marvel or DC, Team Cap or Team Iron Man? Star Trek or Star Wars? Is the dress gold or white? There's lots of other issues that fall into these other secondary things. Now, historically and in the New Testament, it had more to do with the application of Old Testament laws once the church was birthed. So you see conversations in the New Testament like in Acts 15 and 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 14. Um, Do we still have the dietary restrictions? Do we need to insist that Gentiles be circumcised? What day of the week do we gather to worship? The Sabbath of the Lord's Day. Do we still need to keep the Old Testament festivals? And all these passages give insight either explicitly saying yes or no or implicitly giving principles to navigate these issues. Not always telling us what to do, but by giving us some principles to help us make wise, good, loving decisions. And we could spend time walking through those principles today on how to exercise your Christian freedom and liberty in a variety of issues that we, we deal with all the time. You think about it all the time. You have discussions with people about it all the time. Principles related to not causing the weaker brother to stumble or not flaunting your liberties or laying down your liberties because of the love of your brother or sister in Christ. And those are good. Those are important. I may even post something on the city this week along those lines. Like, here's just good questions to ask. Checking your heart, checking your motivation, checking the reasons you're making the decisions you're making. But we're always going to be in process. And on some of these secondary issues, sometimes we, we change. Like we have this conviction now, but over time our convictions change and we're okay with something today that we weren't okay with five years ago. And we're always going to be adding new people and they're in different places as well. And so we're, we're always going to be confronted with this reality. We are not ever going to be in 100%, 100% agreement on 100% of everything. Ever. 100% agreement on a few things for sure. The most important things. But in, in a lot of stuff, we're, we're just not on the same page. So how do we live in relationship 
with people that you don't 100% agree with on everything. So in light of the fact we're talking about this in the context of this shared agreement as covenantal members, in light of the fact that we're talking about this along with the one another's of the New Testament, number 12 on the, on the membership agreement, I want to spend our time today looking at how to be in a healthy relationship with people that we don't 100% agree with on every issue because we're never going to get there. We're always going to be confronted with this reality that while we say we have unity, we're never going to have uniformity. In fact, we don't want uniformity. We say we have this common bond, but we don't have conformity on everything. We, we actually don't want that. We desire to be a group of people that are so diverse that when others look at us, they would ask questions like, what in the world is binding you together so strongly that you can be that different? And yet there's a tangible presence of love and peace and joy and togetherness. Even though you are different ages and different races and different educational levels and different socioeconomic levels and different political persuasions. How do we recognize our differences, not ignore them, sweep them under the rug, stick our head in the sand? We recognize them, maybe even discuss them, maybe even debate them sometimes. But we still have this harmonious, attractive way about us where the one another's are being lived out. Considering these 59 one another passages in the New Testament, and you can Google 50, uh, uh, one another passages in the New Testament, and you'll pull up 10 million websites. And there's people who, who go through each one and explain them and make infographics and all kinds of cool stuff. A third of these 59 one another passages have to do with the church getting along and being united. So being at peace with one another. Don't grumble among one another. Don't bite, devour, consume one another. Don't envy one another. Gently, patiently tolerate one another. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Bear and forgive with one another. Seek good for one another. Don't complain against one another. Confess sins to one another. A third of the passages say to love one another, which is very, very common. Jesus gives us that new command. And another 15% of these passages stress humility and deference among believers. So we serve one another. We're subject, subject to one another. We regard one another as more important than ourselves. We clothe ourselves in humility toward one another. So that's about 80% of those passages. And the rest are like, speak truth to one another. Don't lie to one another. Encourage and build up one another. Pray for one another. Be hospitable to one another. On and on I could go. Now, what makes us attractively distinct as a church that follows Jesus is not that we live out these one another's in a homogenous group where we all look and act and think alike. But we live out these in a diverse group where we serve and love and encourage someone who we are not on the same page with on a variety of secondary issues. When we don't agree, but our bond of love is so visible and tangible that there's peace among us, not because we're sticking our heads in the sand and pretending like the differences don't exist. That's false peace. But because the presence of Christ is so powerful, the Prince of Peace is so powerful, that that peace that he brings is so powerful that all the other differences dissolve into secondary importance. And our love for him and each other dissolves these differences to their proper place. They're still important. Some of these secondary things are very important. But they're not primary because of Christ. 
So you see through this passage in Romans 14 and 15, Romans 14, 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Verse 17 of Romans 14. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Chapter 15, verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul is not giving them, these believers, a paradigm through which there would be uniformity on these issues. He's not dissolving the issues with position papers and telling everyone to get on the same page and agree. He's recognizing these differences exist, but they're not going away. They will continue to exist. So how do you live as a church in light of these issues? And both of these issues in this church and in the Corinth, where 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 deal with these same topics, you have two groups of people. You have the strong and you have the weak. The weaker brother, the one who is weaker in faith or one with a weaker conscience, is one who cannot eat the meat offered to idols. So that's the primary issue uh, being debated here. There's meat that's the very common occurrence that all of the meat that would be sold in the local market in these Rome Rome and in Corinth would have been offered to pagan idols and then they take it to the market and sell it. And so where a lot of times these Jewish background believers, because of their Old Testament monotheistic heritage, monotheism heritage, would could not eat that meat that was offered to a false god. Just just it's ingrained in them. Even though they've come alive in Christ, we can't do it. A lot of the pagan Gentiles who had been eating that meat for their entire life had no problem with it. They come alive in Christ and they can eat that meat because they've been doing it their whole life. The Jewish Christians had never done that. And so in, in these two passages, the one who is weaker is one who cannot eat the meat because to do so would be a violation of their conscience, their faith, because it had been offered to idols. And in their minds, it would be a sin it would bring judgment and condemnation upon themselves. I've sinned against God. I am wrong now. In the words of Tim Keller, he says, Your conscience is weak if it's not deeply oriented to the grace and love of God. You have a weak conscience if you're constantly feeling accused and condemned. The weak people are people who are temperamentally tight and who need everything evaluated. You might say, There are people who want the checklist, they want the formula, they want it black and white. Because I want to be able to evaluate myself to make sure I measure up and evaluate others to determine if they measure up. So I want it crystal clear. And if something is off, I'm condemned. They want it simple. The strong, with whom Paul identifies, are people with knowledge. According to Paul, they know that the food sacrificed to idols should mean nothing because idols are nothing. The strong are not superstitious or legalistic. They're broad-minded, flexible people who don't mind ambiguity. They don't mind the gray areas. They don't need the checklist to which they evaluate themselves and they evaluate everyone else. 
And everyone in this room right now, in a very confident black and white way, has just evaluated ourselves and determined that we are strong in most areas of our life, right? Oh, that's us, man. We're the strong ones. Well, the criticism Paul is bringing in these passages is mostly against those who would consider themselves strong. So this passage now became very applicable to everyone in this room. Now, the criticism of the week is there. Paul mentions it. It's okay to eat meat offered idols. Here's why. But the totality of the passage is this, 15.1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. 15.7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The strong are looking down on the weak and they're not accepting them or being welcoming to them because they are weak. The ones who think they are strong are being judgmental on those who are being judgmental. The weak are also being judgmental, but so are the strong. And neither side is welcoming or accepting each other. And there is disunity in the church on secondary issues because of it. It's kind of like those in our culture who loudly preach tolerance and they push tolerance of all people and all lifestyles, but they can be incredibly intolerant of people that they don't think are tolerant. The same thing can happen in the church. What kind of idiot still thinks it's a sin to drink alcohol all the time? Or sometimes. How can you not... How can you be a student of the scriptures and not see the beauty and truth of Reformed theology? How can you still not be woke about the racial injustice in our nation? How can you, and we could be really transparent and honest with ourselves and identify any number of issues on which we consider ourselves strong and we struggle to bear with those that we consider weak. Maybe in conversations with these people, we feel this temptation to disdain them. Or maybe in conversations about these people, we feel temptations to disdain them and not, they're not to be this unity that Christ has provided. Definitely in our minds and our hearts, we have put them in a category of less informed, weak, not as advanced as me, poor them, I wish they were more like me. And Paul in the New Testament is calling us to something better. Something better. Paul is calling us into a genuine relationship with people we don't agree with. He's not saying keep talking and praying and discussing until you convince them that, they're, that you're right and they're wrong and then be in relationship with them. He's not saying win over their minds. He's saying to the ones who consider themselves strong, bear with the failings of the weak and not to please yourselves. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You have evaluated them and whatever issue it is that's causing division. And even though you still believe they are wrong. And on some of these issues, they are. You and I accept them and welcome them 
The word here, except, speaks of pulling someone toward you, alongside of you. To bear with the failings of the weak means the strong get under the weakness of the weak and they help bear the burden, lifting up on it. Doug Moo, in his commentary on Romans, he points this out. This doesn't mean the strong adopt the position of the weak, but it means two things. Number one, you enter intellectually into the weakness of the weak. So you put your mind in their position to totally understand their position, to see the advantages and the weaknesses of it, to figure out how they came to that position, to sympathize with them. And then number two, you have a relationship with the one who is weak, the one who is in error, the one who is mistaken. Not because they have changed their mind to your position, but while they are still maintaining their wrong position, you don't exclude them. You maintain a relationship with them. Like, isn't this the problem with social media flaming? People sitting in front of computers and on phones and they're saying things to other people on social media that they would never probably say face-to-face with them sitting across a table. Because social media relationships mostly aren't real relationships. It's friends or followers who mostly are either acquaintances or people from our past that we were friends with 25 years ago. I haven't seen them in 25 years except on a screen. Or people we friend and follow because of some benefit that we want to derive from being their friend or follower. And so people feel safe to flame somebody that they're not really in relationship with. They're not talking to face to face. For the strong to say and treat the weak as someone who is ignorant and wrong and to flaunt their liberties in their their face, Paul says this is intolerant. This is not loving. This is not caring. Instead, the strong enters into relationship with the weak and the strong are willing to change and inconvenience themselves and adjust their life and create space for someone they consider wrong. Off on a secondary matter. And and I would even say a primary matter. Because as a church, we want to be a church filled with doubters and, and seekers and followers of Jesus. We want to be in life with people who haven't come alive in Christ. And so we're giving them space to hear the gospel and believe the gospel. Keller puts it like this. You as a Christian should take a person with whom you deeply differ and make space in your life for them to enter in, to go in and disagree with them, but without any disdain, without superiority, completely willing to learn from them, completely willing to understand them, all in an effort to see them become less weak. You want them to get stronger. Jonathan Edwards used the term censorious to describe a person unwilling to do this. A person who is intolerant and just wants to flaunt their strength and not care for the weak except to have them conform to their position. And Edwards makes the point that the person who is censorious is like this not because they disagree with people. Everybody disagrees with somebody and probably all people on something. It's not pointing out the differences. That's not what makes somebody censorious, according to Edwards. What makes them censorious is this. They enjoy negatively evaluating other people. Enjoy it. They enjoy evaluating themselves, evaluating these people as wrong and ignorant and less progressive. 
And they love placing themselves on pedestals above those people. Back when I wasn't a cord cutter and I had, we had normal television and, and cable and satellite, whatever, I used to drive Jennifer nuts because I would like to watch religious television. Just like as a hobby, it's fun. And I, and I try to justify it like, I, you know, I was, before I went to seminary, I was trying to grow as a Christian. And, and when I was in seminary especially, I'm learning all these great truths. I'm wanting to see how these guys don't preach these great truths. And sharpening my discernment and my theological discerning ability. And, you know, here's what they're saying. And this is where they're wrong. How can they say that scripture says that when that scripture really says that? And that's, that's the good face I put on it. But what really was happening in my heart a lot of times was I was enjoying disdaining them. I was enjoying mocking them in my heart. Bunch of idiots. I mean, how can they, how can they teach those things? How wrong can they be? Look how much more theologically advanced I am. Let me flex my theological brain and be impressed with myself. Now, many of those guys need a strong word against them. Their ministries are calling themselves preachers. They're selling a false gospel. They're making millions of dollars, mostly on the backs of poor people and desperate people. So they, they, they need strong words. But I wasn't working toward that. I wasn't writing them a letter saying, please stop preaching the false gospel. I was just sitting there in my mind and my heart, enjoying being disdainful toward these weaker brothers. But that was years ago before social media. And thankfully, you know, I don't struggle with that anymore. None of us do, in fact, as we're scrolling through social media. It's a broken heart of superiority that we struggle with. Apart from the work of Jesus in us, we love to feel superior and more powerful than other people. We who are strong love to enjoy our strength while disdaining the weak. Feel good about ourselves because we're in the right. And we're always going to have differences of opinion, mostly on these secondary, less important issues. That's never going away. So how can we be a group of people who can enjoy the freedoms that we've been given in Christ while living out genuinely and truly the one another's so that our unity and love and affection for each other and for Christ is tangible, visible, attractive, and contagious? How do we really do that? We have to be a people who are more and more and deeper and deeper getting the gospel, namely justification. We are made right with God through the person of Jesus Christ and not our works. We are made right with God not because we are right, not because our positions are right, not because we get it right all the time, not because we're more right than others. We are made right with God through Jesus, and we add nothing to that. Nothing. God is not impressed with our strengths. God is not impressed with how much more theology we understand than other people. He's not impressed with with how much more advanced you and I are in social justice issues. He's not impressed with how active we're serving our city and loving the widow, the orphan, the alien, the special needs family, the foster kids, the poor, the immigrant, the minority. In terms of our justification, none of that, no matter how good it looks, earns, gets, or keeps our salvation. None of it. It's only because of Jesus and His good work that we are right with God. And how did Jesus do that? It tells us in chapter 15. 
For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who are reproached, you fell on me. Christ, who was and is truly strong, truly right, truly good, did not disdain the weak ones, but entered into our weakness, became one of us, so that we who are weak could become strong. The one who had every right to dismiss us in our weakness, in our ignorance, in our failings and sins, did not dismiss us, did not disdain us, but came down and entered into our weakness in order to bring us into a relationship with Him that is maintained not by our rightness, but by His rightness, is kept by His justification. So in a very real way, we can always see ourselves as weak. And living in this constant state of being right with God, being holy and blameless in God's eyes because of Christ, yet still sinful and weak and needing of Christ. In a very real way, when we are tempted to feel superior over our weaker brother because of his inferior position, we look to Christ. We see his weakness, his strength, his love, his humility to come down to us and not disdain us, but love us. Save us. The more we get the gospel, the more we live out this reality of the gospel, the more we live in relationship with Jesus and each other as people who can be and are incredibly diverse but one. Because the bond we share in Christ is stronger and deeper than any other issue that could possibly divide us. And we continue in life genuinely loving and serving and encouraging one another, not because we're winning arguments, but because Christ has won our hearts. And if Christ has won our hearts, we will love one another. We will bear with one another. We will accept one another. We will welcome one another, no matter how we differ. And that kind of community is attractive and infectious and contagious and can transform homes and neighborhoods and schools and cities because that only happens because of Jesus. You can't make that happen any other way. Seven of us went to the Advanced Church Conference this past week in Memphis, Thursday and Friday, the Acts 29 Conference. Fantastic time, learning, growing together, being challenged. And one of the, in one of the breakouts, a leader was going around the room, and he was talking about vision. He was asking some of us to share the, our mission and our vision of our church. He's just wanting to, to, you know, who can say it in a succinct way and answer some questions real quick. And so I shared our, our vision, our mission. You know, we want all people to enjoy Christ by, by following Christ and being changed by his gospel. And he asked a few follow-up questions. And then he said, how's that going? And he wanted real fast, quick answers. And I was like, uh, a glorious mess. It's glorious because we are seeing the gospel change people's lives. And it is messy because we still need the gospel. Because we are still sinful. And that's what we're after as a crossing. Being the people of God, a family serving one another, serving our city, proclaiming the gospel as we are sent into the city to be missionaries. And doing it in a way that doesn't impress people with us, but impresses people with Jesus. And they're captivated by Him and not us. 
because he's the only explanation for what you see. The good and his sacrifice covers the bad that we still mess up on. The best things that we have done, the best things that we have experienced in the last three to four years have been when that has happened. By God's grace, let's keep putting ourselves in a position of humility and lowliness before God, totally dependent on Christ for everything so that we can keep seeing these good things happen in us and through us for the glory of God. Father, we are thankful. So thankful that Christ has come. The strongest one in the universe took on our weakness so that we who bring nothing to the table could become part of your family forever. And the same grace that we have received abundantly from Christ, Father, I pray we would abundantly share with one another and show one another so that more and more this body of believers would be one, yet diverse. Make that happen according to the power of your Spirit for the glory of Christ. Do this in us, this good work that you're doing because you love us. We pray in Jesus' name.